You're listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast with Michael Webb. This is Michael Webb, and this is the Sales Process Excellence Podcast. Some people focus on data and applying statistics to solve business problems. Other people focus on reaching senior level decision makers and making the best value propositions. Here, we bring both together to create wealth for everyone. I'm really excited today to introduce you to my guest, Bob Apollo of Inflection Point. Bob, welcome here. Uh, Very pleased to be here. Thanks. (laughs) So, uh, for those in the audience who might not be familiar with you, could you give us a a couple of minutes of uh, your background, where you came from, and what you're doing now and why? Sure. Well, I started my career, and this is maybe something we'll come back to, at Hewlett-Packard in the days when it was an exemplary uh, company. And uh, since then, without really planning it, my career ended up being joining a succession of uh, relatively younger uh, companies in relatively less well-developed markets and helping them to navigate that all-important scale-up phase. Now, at the end of the corporate career, I'd been through uh, at least three uh, IPOs, a similar number of acquisitions, and uh, candidly, I decided it was time to get off the hamster wheel. And that was the point at which I launched uh, my consultancy inflection point. So... That is a big career transition for lots of people who do it. I did the same one, um, and and I've talked to a lot of executives who um, wanted to, you know, make that or considering making that transition to going independent and hanging out your own shingle. Um, I know I found it as a as a challenge. It was more challenging than I thought it was would be. And uh, a lot of the executives that I've talked to have also found that uh, it's 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 just it's a hamster wheel, but it's another kind of hamster wheel. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, what what's your observations about transitioning from working in a corporation to being an independent consultant? Yeah, and it isn't anything like as easy or as straightforward as I think some people might assume or hope looking from the outside in. Um, I also think you learn certain things about yourself that you uh, weren't aware of maybe when you were working in a corporate environment. Um, And I actually, uh, and this really wasn't explicitly planned, but I transitioned in a progressive way through uh, a number of uh, interim management roles and I think that uh, that transition allowed me then to progressively build up um, what is now more of a pure uh, consulting and sales effectiveness business by pivoting through uh, the interim management stage and by and large with organizations that I'd known in in corporate life. So I, I think you have to manage the transition. And, and, and candidly, sometimes you just need to get lucky. <laughs> yes, and sometimes you just need to work really hard. <laughs> well, that that I think goes without saying. So, what is it that these corporations were missing that led you to um, to want to launch a business to supply it? Yeah. So, 
It's probably worth just reflecting briefly on what I'd characterize as my ideal client, and they tend to be uh, business-to-business focused, uh, often complex sale, often in a innovative market where it's a sort of a discretionary or strategic uh, purchase, um, and they're post-startup, but not yet uh, at a corporate level. So those characteristics often mean that their sales processes have been based uh, probably a little bit more on heroics than on structure, uh, mm-hmm. maybe on the individual efforts of the mm-hmm. founders. And they very often hit a bit of a wall. It's not a solid wall. It might be more of a, you know, a incline or what have you, where the scalability uh, isn't quite what they hoped and expected it to be. There's a sort of big um, gap between the lowest and highest performing salespeople. There's maybe an inconsistency or an unpredictability about uh, revenue deliverability. There's a sort of lack of revenue confidence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, of course, that isn't the sort of conversation that CEOs enjoy having with their board or with their investors. So it's this sort of moment when they're doing well, they have done well, but they're realizing maybe they need to apply a different mindset. Um, in order to take the company up to the next level of revenue performance. And what is that mindset that, that they're, how do they experience it? What are they shifting from and to? How do they, how do they characterize that mindset that they need? Yeah, I mean, it's very often historically been an era of heroics and uh, selling to early adopters. And, you know, I was much influenced in my early corporate career by the thinking of people like Jeffrey Moore uh, crossing Mm -hmm. the chasm and of the idea that uh, a different sales approach is needed to approach and successfully deal with the different sorts of buyers that characterize, you know, the the largest potential markets. So I talked with another uh, business owner also to be in the United Kingdom, and he was saying that he he was a, a distribution and he would have some of his salespeople. Um, excuse me. Let me back up a second. He's not. A, he sells through distribution, mm-hmm. and he has salespeople who handle some of those channels. Sure. And uh, some of the salespeople in some of the distributors, and some of his own people who handled the distributors, would somehow figure out how to sell the more strategic, more high-value, complex sale types of items. Yep. But then life would happen and that person would, you know, need to leave the company and move on to something else in their career and they would be faced with, well, okay, now how do we replace um, that business? But that sounds like a different problem though. They were, that company was wondering how do we design a process and how do we right. make it so that it's repeatable so that we could bring somebody in to sell this high value stuff. Oh, no, you're no, saying, I, I, right? And they wanted to keep it in the company where you're saying that it was it's already in the company, but they don't exactly know how to do it. Well, uh, there's often wide variation in performance. There's very often a lack of um, institutional learning uh, within the organization, um, you know, uh, assessment of patterns of success and failure. And, you know, it's sometimes a little difficult to make that assessment when you're very close to it. And one of the great benefits of engaging somebody with both an outside perspective and an experience of 
many other similar organizations going on a similar journey is you can look for those patterns. You can extract that sort of undocumented, often uh, institutional experience mm -hmm. and uh, turn it into something that has the, you know, creates the foundation of scalability, of being able to induct new people uh, quickly and effectively in how to be successful salespeople. Um, now, is part of that, um, I mean, is, it, is, it, is the, the part that makes salespeople successful, is that strictly between the salespeople's ears or is there something, like you said a moment ago, this institutional learning, is there something inherent in the business itself that enables salespeople? Well, I think if you only think of it as attempting to improve individual skills, you're you're missing a tremendous yeah. driver of performance. You know, I I think if you and and by the way, if you end up um, hiring and running a bunch of lone wolf salespeople, sooner or later you suffer from it um, because you know they're very often in it for themselves rather than uh, see themselves as part of a collective. Mm -hmm. So, you know, companies can create an environment where, you know, that sort of uh, collective group learning happens where everybody uh, learns from each other, or they can create this sort of adversarial environment where, you know, it's every salesperson out for themselves. And you know, I know which of the two structures I believe will drive um, future performance. And uh, actually, I think you can see it in the marketplace as well. Mm. So how would you see it in the marketplace? Well, you know, uh, and I think they're a dying breed, but uh, organizations that are characterized by extremely aggressive, self-centered uh, selling tactics, um, it, customers start to lose patience uh, uh, with them. They can be very clever about how they attempt to lock their customers in, but sooner or later it, uh, it, creates, uh, it creates resentment. Okay. So the old-fashioned sort of uh, salesperson um, who just, uh, yeah, he, he, he's not operating as part of the team. He is right. the one who's responsible for everything. And, and, yeah. I mean, I don't want to characterize this as, you know, old versus new, you know, old days, new days, and so on. But I, but I, but I do think that um, the sort of archetypal, traditional view of the highly driven salesperson is being replaced by a more thoughtful model and it's proving to be more effective. Yeah. I had a, a client tell me one time, also complex sales environment. This was capital equipment, uh, mm. you know, half a million dollar, million dollar uh, pieces of equipment. All, a lot of them were um, the, the complexity of the configurations was such that there was engineering involved. Right, to sure. set up the uh, quotations and things, um, and set up the deals, and it would take you know six months or a year to manufacture it and ship it. Um, mm -hmm. And he said uh, an interesting thing. He said, you know, in with our sales team, it's it's kind of hard to tell when somebody's doing a good job. Have you seen that sort of thing before? Uh, I think it depends on what you're looking for, because I think if you're properly characterizing your sales process, and by the way, I'm not a 
huge fan of using process partly because of its connotations with a manufacturing approach, which I think doesn't completely reflect the complexities of uh, non-linear complex uh, sales. But I do think you look for leading indicators, and I think you can see um, predictors of future success in in that. Um, you know, certainly I've worked with 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 with, with clients where they, they can form a informed judgment about who's likely to be successful and when they're likely to be successful, mm-hmm. and uh, and so on. And, and it's really they... looking at. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, please. As well, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That that is a uh, important point. You said two two pieces there that I'd like to dissect if we could. Um, one of them was the comment about um, uh, processes not mm. applying so much in sales, which we'll come back to. Um, but the one most recent one about the, you can make judgments about. Uh, which sales people would be successful and perhaps which deals uh, would be most likely to close. Um, so that's precisely the kind of thing that's difficult to know if you're not measuring things uh, sure. in a process sort of a fashion, isn't it? Yeah, again, um, there are, uh aspects of this where uh the conventional definition of process fits very well uh, i think the reason i made the observation is because i think there's a growing recognition that the customer's decision journey isn't actually and that's that's the most important thing from my perspective it's the the customer's journey and not the sales right activities right um is uh, very rarely uh, unless you're in, let's say, uh, I don't know, a quasi-governmental procurement of a well-understood um, solution. It isn't linear, despite the protestations to the contrary. It, you know, moves forwards and backwards. New stakeholders come into play. Uh, Gartner characterized it, uh, I think, uh, very well earlier this year as it's not so much a sort of a linear series of extremely def- well-defined steps which never get reversed. It's a bit more like a spaghetti bowl. Um, you know, that, that's my, you know, observation on, on, uh, on, uh, on, on the over-rigid application of a conventional definition of uh, a process. I'm a great believer in process. I have been since uh, HP, I think, one of um, HP's great under-recognized strengths in those days when, you know, the state of the art of the debate about selling might have been, is it an art or a science or both? Mm-hmm. That HP recognized it to be a triumvirate, actually, of art, science, and engineering, and that the three could be combined and blended in a way that uh, was likely to drive, you know, much better outcomes. So what's your conventional definition of process? Uh, a, a series of well-defined uh, steps uh, which can be measured and which lead to some predictable outcomes. That's my, you know, off the top of my head. I'm sure that's not a very good textbook um, uh, definition, but uh, that's my working uh, definition. And so what's the problem with that? I like that definition. Very simple. Um, what's the problem with that definition in a sales environment? 
Well, so, uh, and in fact, uh, just participating in another discussion today about this, it is, uh, if that is then um, translated into a belief that there is uh, in any cells environment, let alone universally, a single methodology that if implemented will uh, drive success. And I think the reason for that is um, even in fairly well-defined markets, there's a very wide variation in uh, buying behavior uh, and the buying dynamics. And it's extremely important, therefore, that salespeople behave in a situational way. So that means they might pick up, you know, one element of one methodology or an approach in certain situation. They might intelligently um, adopt uh, a different approach based on their diagnosis of, you know, the situation they're facing in another opportunity. It's more of a blended thing. I mean, I don't want to get into a overly semantic discussion about it because I don't, you know, I think the process is incredibly powerful, but I've tended to prefer to think in terms of frameworks, flexible frameworks, rather than extremely prescriptive processes. So maybe that's just a sort of a semantic thing. Well, you know, so uh, this is great, a uh, great uh, point in the discussion because because I would differ with you about it. I think it, what we're what you're coming to is something that I've come to also from a different angle. Mm -hmm. It is that in the sales profession in B two B, their conception of process is this. Um, sort of rigid procedure yep. that must be followed. I remember yep. many, many years ago, uh, I was a business forms uh, salesman and a sales manager, and they gave us this, this uh, rigid script we had to memorize to make these big presentations to our customers. And all the salespeople just resisted it. But man, if your boss was there, you had to follow it exactly the way that they told you to do it. Um, and this is what is immortalized in concrete computer code, right? It's like pouring concrete. You can't change it once it's in the software of your CRM system. Um, and, and there's this sort of uh, rigid approach that the salesperson must take, but that ignores the, 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 the changing environment around the salesperson. I mean, for example, more and more people today are searching on the internet for information and avoiding talking to B2B salespeople. Well, they're partly avoiding the talking to salespeople because they've, many of them, not all of them, but unfortunately still a significant number of them, have developed a well-deserved reputation for what I'd characterize as boorish behavior, you know, concerned about telling the customer about their company or their products or their so-called solutions and not investing anything like enough time on truly understanding the um, the customer's situation and environment or, or even better actually helping the customer understand their environment maybe better than they themselves can right and thereby drawing their attention to unrecognized uh, opportunities or unrecognized needs or implications that the customer with their perhaps rather narrow internal focus uh, could not easily recognize for themselves. 
Um, I uh, I would run a mile from any client who um, was of a mindset that what they needed to do to improve sales performance was to have better scripts. I think it's an absolute nonsense in any complex environment. And I, I, I would uh, totally agree, and I would extend that into, in a lot of cases, unfortunately, the way that they are using software to offer, quote, sales enablement, unquote. Sure. Where the salesperson is expected to follow this little script at this little branch or step of the process and that one at that little branch because it sort of presumes that the overmeister who designed this system really knows what's going on in all these, you know, all these I mean, hey, potential who, who, variations. Who's actually talking to the customer? Who's actually in the best position to make a judgment? Uh, it's not some sales process architect sitting remotely. Um, so, you know, so my definition of a process, and that's why I think of a flexible framework rather than a rigid process, is to equip the salesperson with options, uh, options that enable them to diagnose and react accordingly to what they read, you know, what they determine about the customer's situation. Right. Um, so, you, you, and you can't predefine that route from the start you know um, the great military planners whether it was eisenhower churchill what have you uh, said something like you know uh, planning is nothing so the plan is nothing but planning is everything mm -hmm. so you know uh, on, uh, i think it was van molke who said no plan of action survives first contact with the enemy well i think it's equally true that no rigid process in today's world survives first contact with the customer. You've got to be adaptable, uh, empathetic, um, flexible. You've got to be curious. Now, those aren't the qualities that many people would have associated with the sort of archetypal salesperson of a generation ago. Right. Um, but the customers demand more now. Their expectations are higher. They've been burnt too often by inwardly set focused salespeople. So, so um, the, the framework that you're describing, this sort of traditional, and I agree, incorrect view of mm -hmm. what a process is, um, is missing a key uh, factor, uh, in my view, from, from what a process really is. The purpose of a process is to create value, mm -hmm. either for the customer, ultimately has to be for the customer, Sure. Or for the people inside the company, right? For the salesperson. And it is, that's the North Star by which the salesperson, I mean, if he's going to react to the facts on the ground or she's going to react to the facts on the ground in any given situation, they have to be able to identify the customer's context and their own right. company's context. This is why sales is a more, it's a complex kind of a, of a task and you need to put, you know, very skilled and knowledgeable people in those roles, especially where the role of the salesperson is very prominent in the customer's impression. Yeah, and I, th I would say also if, and I wrote about this the other day, uh, in environments where the customer is un in unfamiliar territory, if they're buying something they've bought repeatedly before, they've probably mastered uh, the art of buying it. If this mm -hmm. is the first time, that they've tried to buy a category of thing. Um, 
you know, they may be completely unused uh, or unfamiliar or just unaware of, uh, you know, the important considerations. Uh, I'll make an observation about value. And, and this is something that I'm sure I said to my colleagues at HP, and this is a long time ago. I sort of looked around in the market and I looked at a bunch of um, sales organizations who were trying to talk about uh, added value. And I just rail away from that combination of words, adding value, because what I observed they really meant was justifying uh, the extra features they were trying to promote to the customer and thereby justifying the extra price, despite the fact that the customer didn't need or want that functionality <laughs> and would have been much happier uh, with simpler. All right. So uh, I absolutely. I like the idea of creating value, but that value creation uh, has some, there are, you can do it by creating a certain amount of an archetype. You can say, you know, in an archetype, we can create an archetype of how we create value for this or that type of business or role or problem. Um, but um, at the end of the day, uh, value has to be somewhat unique to the organization or the customer or the stakeholder you're selling to. And I think there's a real skill in uh, a necessary skill in salespeople who have this ability to genuinely create value, not spouting a generic universal value proposition, but having a conversation and seeing that conversation reflected in the proposal they subsequently make to the customer, which is very much tuned to that particular customer's environment. It's got certain resonances with a proposal they might make to the next customer, but they're not cookie cutting it. And, and one of the things that maddens me is uh, people thinking that in order to improve um, the efficiency and effectiveness of their proposals, they you need know, to have a whole range of cookie cutter components. And at a supporting level, at an appendix level, uh, I think that's right. But if you try and take a cookie cutter approach to the executive summary, if you say the same words very often about how great you are as a company in those executive summaries, the impact is profoundly less powerful mm -hmm. than if the exact summary reads as if it has genuinely been written uniquely based on a deep understanding of what's valuable to the customer. And, and by the way, not just the positive value, but, uh, you know, it's said, and I believe it, that, um, that uh, you know, one of the, the commonest reasons for complex buying cycles not resulting in a sale, purchase of anything is because um, the, uh, the, the customer cannot come to a decision. They decide to do nothing. It's mm -hmm. not that you lose to the competition. You lose to a, a no decision. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think the executive summary really needs to include a rationale for why the customer needs to change. Never mind buy your product, but why uh, the status quo is uncomfortable and unsafe. And I don't see enough of that in proposals either. And that's almost contrasting negative value of staying as they are with the positive value associated with change and, 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 and some unique incremental value created by this particular vendor's 
uh, unique understanding of the circumstances. So let me see if this, if you share this um, observation. I, I have seen mm, a lot of senior executives um, who are very, very interested in what our short-term sales forecast looks like and mm -hmm. how much money the sales team is bringing into our company. Mm -hmm. And then they have very little interest or even recognition, you know, or don't even pay any attention to how much value or profit we are adding to customers today sure. because of our offers and our interactions with them. Nobody really studies the value that customers get from our products and services. Um, have you seen that? Well, uh, I think historically that has been a problem. And, you know, I know the software business probably better than any other. And in the old days when you were selling large license fees up front, um, uh, there was relative indifference, I think, to whether or not the system actually delivered, you know, value to the customer. I do think the transition to software as a service has changed that. Because your ability to renew the relationship with the customer is uh, is absolutely dependent on the customer's perception that uh, you know in their initial experience of you, you've uh, you've genuinely created value. So, so I think it's changing. Yeah, it was a go ahead. It was a structural problem, I think, with. Uh, you know, classic large upfront software purchases. And I think the move to, you know, re repeatable revenue, renewable revenue, um, it, it has forced a change in mindset and not before time. Although it seems counterintuitive to me if you have to put a lot of money up front to buy software like you used to, that they mm -hmm. didn't care so much about the return on investment. I guess they were just oh, I, I, buying I, I, on faith. I think, no, I think the customers did. Um, I think they they created financial justifications. Whether or not that financial justification was uh, achieved in practice is another matter. But I think there was just a, a unless you wanted to write a case study up, right? In which yeah. case you might be interested in uh, the value. Uh, and I, I work with so there's a role. Um, customer success, which has become increasingly recognized as a key component in, um, you know, repeatable revenue businesses, whether it's software or, or others. And I think even within that, there's a quite an interesting variation in appreciation of the role of um, customer success. At one end, they're really seen as being somewhat reactive. You know, if the customer's got an issue, we'll deal with it. We'll, we'll try and keep them happy. But I think the leading edge companies who are implementing uh, customer success are actually chartering those people with uh, making, vis making visible the value that's been created because they've started to recognize that if they don't do that, questions may be asked at renewal time about do we really need this stuff? Right. So, uh, but that's a, Unfortunately, still a minority, but a growing minority. So this isn't just about, um, you know, satisfying the customer's functional requirements or support needs. It's actually about helping the customer to recognize the value that's been created, um, right. you know, making it tangible. So I've recommended to people, uh, and I put it in my book, 
that the senior executives of the company, if they want to make a change in this um, part of their of their business, make it more um, make it easier for customers to buy, then they need to elevate the customer's financial performance, customers' sure. benefit. And, and what the customer gets out of their products and services. They need to elevate that to the same level as they elevate their own financial performance. So that they're, if, if senior executives are looking for, has this customer benefited? How much has this customer benefited? In what ways has this customer benefited? It provides the air cover for the employees to spend time looking for that information and constructing ways to get it um, so that so that it can be understood. Sure. So that's something that um, I guess easy to say, uh, not so easy to do. Um, so so let's transition. When you're working with clients, um, mm -hmm. what's the model uh, of what you do? Is it are you like primarily uh, a sort of a sales training kind of a model, um, or w what sort of interactions do you have with your well, um, yeah, for a number of reasons, not least of which it's fairly widely acknowledged now that uh, training by itself uh, might give a momentary lift, but tends not to drive long-term performance change. If a potential client thinks all they need is training, I'm inclined to point them into the direction of there are hundreds, literally, of competent sales training companies. I'm much more focused, and there's part of my qualification in terms of, you know, is this the right client to work with, um, to find organizations who recognize that training is just one component, uh, you know, that as well as training the salespeople, of course, that needs to be reinforced, that the training needs to be delivered in the context of clarity about which opportunities they should be pursuing in the first place, uh, what approach they should be using for diagnosing and discovering and making these informed situational selling judgments, mm -hmm. creating uh, tools, making sure that the CRM is uh, actually something that helps and guides the salespeople rather than is seen as a uh, an administrative burden that, frankly, they'd prefer to avoid at all costs. So uh, I, I'd say to you that uh, what I really look for is a recognition that there's a almost a big-picture sales effectiveness uh, program, mm -hmm. which is really about partly about developing skills, but about developing skills in a context where uh, those skills can be fully applied and where there is a, a continuous learning um, opportunity. Now, you you know talked about data. I think uh, prior in our mm -hmm. conversation, you mm -hmm. know, earlier in this session, and um, I think one of the tremendous advantages that has happened in the past few years is the application of a generic. Uh, analytics framework uh, into a very specific uh, framework for assessing uh, sales performance in an informed way, um, allowing 
uh, not only uh, a more rational assessment of which opportunities will close and when and what's the probability, but actually looking at patterns of performance and behavior between salespeople and, you know, understanding what is it that uh, makes certain people good at the top of the funnel and struggle at the bottom and vice versa. So uh, I, I, I think there's a, fortunately, a growing appreciation amongst enlightened sales organizations of the power of intelligent analytics in here. And what do you mean intelligent analytics? So can you concretize that for me? So, uh, yeah. So what I mean by intelligent analytics is firstly that it, this isn't a, you don't achieve it in my view by taking, you know, one of the many uh, general purpose business intelligence platforms and spending years trying to customize it to your company's environment. You do it by instead buying into uh, effectively becoming a part of a community. Uh, and this is what the specialist sales analytics tools um, uh, are doing, whereby you not only learn from what works and what doesn't work in your environment, but you can establish uh, benchmarks uh, between your operation and other similar organizations and look for where you're over or underperforming. Um, re really, in part, intelligent analytics is also about uh, presenting the information in a way that's actionable, um, that you know allows you to understand the context. Um, you know, seeing analytics not as a mechanical thing, but as something that uh, is designed to illuminate patterns of uh, performance. Um, and allow you to benchmark against best practice, either inside your industry or, or outside. Um, and that's a very, very different approach to analytics from the conventional, you know, let IT implement it. Mm -hmm. um, the sort of modern wave of analytics, at least in my experience, is actually being bought, implemented and run by uh, data-driven, insight-driven sales leaders rather than you know, traditionally, it being an IT function. Interesting. And so so we've opened up. I want to ask you questions in two different areas, but we've been on the phone here for a long time. Maybe we should save okay. it for a, a, okay. a follow-up uh, if, if that works for you. One of them is this whole um, issue of sales methodologies. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a half a dozen well-known uh, mm -hmm. methodologies out there and being in this profession I'm sure you have opinions and observations about that. Yep. Um, but then there's also the issue of uh, you know CRM and data and using it to help make sales easier and help sales right. well um, and, and there's a whole constellation of issues um, around mm -hmm. that. It sounds like when you're working with a client, ideal client, you're operating in both of those spheres with the client, helping them set up a system for managing sales. Yeah. And, and so uh, first observation, I think any uh, sales company that's developed a methodology, and there's a bunch of them, don't need to quote them now, has a vested interest in promoting that methodology as being the one to use. Right. And uh, none of them are complete. And in fact, each of them has virtues or many of them have virtues. So uh, I think what intelligent salespeople do and intelligent sales organizations do is to use a blend of methodologies. 
you know, certain questioning techniques, certain approaches to how to constructively provoke the customer, relationship building, uh, and so on. Um, uh, that's the sort of first thing. There, there is no single best way. There is no universally best sales methodology. Uh, you know, if you slavishly follow one, I think you get blindsided to some of the the weaknesses of our, uh, you know, as well as the strengths. Now, the CRM one's a really interesting one because I think the history of CRM, regrettably, is really has its roots in more of an administration system than a sales enablement uh, system. And, you know, some of the larger CRMs have made, I think, honorable attempts to become more of a proper sales effectiveness, sales enablement platform, you know, based around the salespeople wants to use it because it helps them make smart decisions rather than they're forced to use it because that's what their managers told them to do. Um, and I think there is a new wave. And I will use the word process in this case, because I think it you know, uh, applies pretty well, uh, uh, of CRMs, which are not based around you know, uh, data architectures, but they're based around uh, processes or combinations of processes that guide the salespeople in uh, making intelligent choices and doing smart things so that that's a that's a dramatic architectural change do i design crm uh in a traditional way you know seeing it as a, a repository for data or do i see it as something which i want to use to drive behavior and i, and I think you end up with pretty different designs uh, at least in terms of the user experience between you know, am I primarily data-driven or am I primarily behavior-driven? By, by the way, I, I, I think it's entirely possible to do both. I think it's easier to start with a behavioral mindset and then look at the data you need in order to drive behavior rather than the other way around. Very interesting. Well, let's make that uh, the topic of our next discussion. I think it would be um, a topic that a lot of people would, be interested in your perspective on um, and in your practical experience on. Uh, would sure. that be all right? Happy to. No, happy to. Super. Well, Bob, thank you very much. You have a, a wonderful perspective based on a lot of years of experience in a number of different industries so that you can see the challenges, not just of B2B salespeople, uh, but of their organizations. So um, I really look forward to our next conversation. And so how can someone uh, get a hold of you if they want to learn more about what you do and how you might be able to help? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, they can uh, visit the website, uh, which I hope contains a lot of these ideas in the form of blogs and, uh, uh, and other material. And that's at www.inflection-point.com and that is spelled i-n-f-l-e-x-i-o-n dash p-o-i-n-t.com and uh, there's a resources section and a blog section on that site that i hope some of your listeners will find interesting and of potential value super well thank you again i uh, really look forward to our next conversation and uh until then, good selling. Well, uh, 
Thank you, Michael. Uh, equally, I very much appreciate and enjoyed the conversation. Uh, and I'd like to wish you and everybody who's listening good selling. The Sales Process Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Sales Performance Consultants. Discover how to improve your B2B sales with systems thinking at salesperformance.com.